Thanks so much for coming this morning, everyone, and welcome. If you're a guest, really welcome, and thank you for being here. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and today Allie is going to read for us what might be the most familiar passage in the entire New Testament. It's the story of the birth of Jesus, and we hear it every year at some point. If nothing else, in some Charlie Brown special, we'll hear parts of this read. It's a beautiful passage, and we're actually going to be analyzing it a little bit this morning. Really excited about what God might say to us. I've prayed that he would use today to stir our hearts for this week and also just bring to life this story for us afresh and anew. So you're familiar enough. The scripture will be on the screen later when we plow our way through it and examine it. But this morning, we just want to listen to Allie. Now, this is a little uncomfortable for me because we have Allie up here reading about every other year, and in between these readings, she gets a foot taller, so I keep expecting to do that, and Allie is now almost as tall as I am. Would you go old school with me and stand out of reverence for God's Word as Allie reads for us from Luke chapter 2. A reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. If you could give Jesus a present, what would you give? Why don't you have a seat and let's check this out. Surprise! What are you guys doing? <laughs> well, today is your special day, and your birthday comes only once a year. Well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Since you're here, why don't you sit down and talk? We'll catch up. No, 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 no. This is about you. And this year for your birthday, we knew exactly what you wanted. Really? Yeah, yeah. we did you see them. We all got you gifts. Well, the gifts are really unnecessary. I mean, I, I just want to sit down and chat. Here, <laughs> open mine first. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, uh, <laughs> clever. Uh, yeah. W-W-I-D. <laughs> And I'm the only one that can wear it. Right? Do you love it or what? <laughs> yeah. I thought, if Jesus would want anything, this would be it. It's great, Drew. <laughs> Listen, I know you were looking for work. Yeah, Jesus, you know what? We're all looking for work. Here, open mine. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's a Bible. Oh, Bible. And it's got your name on it, and your words are in red, just in case you forgot what you said. <laughs> Always nice. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> How did it go when you went over to talk to your... Oh, Jesus. I, here, open uh, my gift. Okay. Yeah, you're going to love it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> See, right here. Huh? Okay, and what is this? Sand from the Holy Land. I, I special oh. ordered it just for you so that you would feel more at home, you know? I do. Anyway, and that's not all. <laughs> Check this out. Huh? Cross. Yes, a cross, <laughs> exactly. But not just any cross. This cross was made from the same wood that your cross was made from. Can you uh, believe it? And you can uh, wear it as a necklace, you know, to remind you of that day. Yeah, I don't think that's a problem. 
all this is unnecessary, guys, because all I really want to do is talk. Jesus, what is your problem? I mean, if you don't like our gifts, just say so. Yeah, we went through a lot of trouble to get you these. This Bible was not cheap, and the engraving was real gold. You're going to act like that. You can forget about seeing us at Easter. You know, you can at least be grateful for the stuff that you wanted. But all I really wanted was... You. What are you laughing about? The incident that Allie read for us just now has become very familiar to most of us. But there's an aspect of the story that I think has been given insufficient emphasis, let's say. I'm talking about the context. The context of the story. And the context is critically important to the author Luke. He wrote his biography originally for his friend Theophilus. Check out the introduction to Luke's account of Jesus' life. In Luke's own words, he has written to give an account of the things that were fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by eyewitnesses. He adds that he, quote, carefully investigated everything, end quote, and that he wrote, quote, an orderly account so that his readers might know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Clearly, in a work like this, the context would have been vitally important So there are three things about the context, the context of Jesus' birth that I don't think we should miss. Important point number one about the context of Jesus' birth, this story is set in human history. The context of this incident is human history. So listen again to the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to him to be married and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn son. If you take time to read scholarly accounts and journals and books about this passage, you'll find that countless hours have been spent investigating the details of Luke's chronology. First of all, historians have tried to use Luke's geographical and people markers to nail down the exact time of Jesus' birth, the year and even the time of year. They've looked at the reign of Caesar Augustus, the governorship of Quirinius, They've looked at the locales mentioned and the people and the various Roman censuses mentioned in ancient writings. In the process, difficulties have been encountered kind of piecing together all that happened and all that's described here. For instance, from extra-biblical sources, we know that a man named Quirinius was, in fact, the governor of Syria. And we know that a census was ordered under the governorship of Quirinius. But Quirinius didn't become governor until around 9 AD. And the census happened much later than that, which would have made it far too late to agree with other sources about the timing of Jesus' birth. So this kind of detail is often used to cast doubt on the realness of these events. 
This is the kind of thing that you'll hear talked about in one of those National Geographic specials where they talk about the life of Jesus and some really nice, well-intentioned historian with a British accent will suggest that this kind of detail demonstrates that we can't really rely on the facts of the Bible as they are presented. But I'm convinced it is possible to rely on the details of the Bible. And I'm convinced not because it's my job to do so, but I'm convinced because after examining the evidence, that's where it leads. As with all of these kinds of historical challenges, you need to know that there are many possible solutions, and some of them are even probable. For instance, in the case I just mentioned, perhaps the other sources identifying the dates of Quirinius' governorship are less reliable than Luke's account. Did you know that we have far more written material about Jesus Christ than we do about Julius Caesar? In fact, Luke's account is far more extensive and detailed than any other account describing this period. As far as I can tell, the only reason that scholars question it is because of its supernatural content. They make an assumption before they go to the text, well, nothing like that could have possibly happened, so this text must be called into question. Or perhaps there was another Roman census ordered much earlier in Quirinius' rulership, but the only ancient reference to it is Luke's. Or perhaps Quirinius held another post prior to his governorship, like assistant governorship, which Luke's word governor also covers. There are a lot of possibilities. The point is, the context for Jesus' birth is human history. Luke understands it so, and he means for Theophilus to understand it, and us as well. It actually happened. It's true. Uh, Pastor John Piper put it like this, This event happened on a real day, he says, a day on the calendar. And it happened in a real city, not in Narnia or some other magical kingdom. It happened in a city called Bethlehem. This past Wednesday night, I didn't ask Amy's permission to do this, but this past Wednesday night I I went with Diane to watch our middle schoolers engage in some wildness that they meet every Wednesday night over the Dulles South Community Center. And at one point, Josh asked the middle schoolers to sit down, got them in groups, and then he had them read this story. And he had them turn to one another and say, you know, what was new? What struck you this time hearing this story, about this story? They told one another. And after it was over, he gathered us all together, and he said, okay, well, what did you hear in your circles? What struck you about this story? And Amy DeJani raised her hand, and she said, I I don't don't know that it, it struck me new from reading this story, but... We had an opportunity, and the Dejani family did. We had an opportunity last year to go to the Holy Land, and, you know, I was in Bethlehem, and you know what she talked about? She talked about how it was a real place. And it was so wild to be able to go and walk somewhere and know that Jesus might have walked here in this spot. And it just made it come alive. And, of course, Amy knew that it was a real place, but being there, You know, if you grew up in the Holy Land, this would be like reading Joseph got up and went to Reston because that's where he came from. This is a real place. This is not Narnia or some magical kingdom. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago here at Gateway. We talked about how Christianity at its essence, at its core, is not a state of mind. It's not a set of religious practices and rituals. At its essence... Christianity is not even a spiritual experience. Okay, it is all of those things. But at its core, Christianity is a belief in a set of historical facts. The facts may be false. You may disbelieve the facts, and you might be right to do so. 
But our faith rises and falls on the truth, the actuality of a set of historical, remarkable, unique facts, things that actually happened. I'll bring this point up regularly here at Gateway because this notion of truth is, I think, really at the heart of what's being attacked by the spirit of our age. In biblical times, the critical spiritual issue revolved around uh, the recognition of only one God. In most quarters, many gods were recognized, in fact, a pantheon of gods. But against this, God's people declared, hey, Yahweh is Lord of heaven and earth. He's holy. He's unique. There is no other. But today, the critical spiritual issue revolves around recognizing that there's really no such thing as truth. What's really true, we're encouraged to believe, is what's true for you. Against that, we offer the life of Jesus. It happened in real time, in a real place, and as we'll hear in a minute, through it, God makes a real offer to you and me, an offer that must be accepted or rejected. The context of Jesus' birth is real human history. One more thing to put a period on this. I know that some of you look at some of the details of Jesus' life virgin born and you struggle with believing the actuality of that this morning believe it or not i want to affirm your struggle you're doing exactly what you should do the bible intends in fact the bible demands matthew mark luke and john demand of you that you take these details very seriously they happened at a real place in real time And this demands that you and I believe it or disbelieve it, and you're right to examine it. I only encourage you to examine it really. Let the real evidence take you where the real evidence leads you, and don't make assumptions. Second thing about the context of this story, this story is set in redemptive history, and Luke means it to be so. So here's what I mean. The word redeem means to buy something back or to make something that's unacceptable into something that's acceptable or or to gain or to regain possession of something. Redemptive history is the story of human beings creating distance between ourselves and God. It's the story of our soiling God's original purpose and design for us through our own attempts to find meaning and purpose and pleasure apart from Him. And then God taking it upon Himself to bring us back to Himself to restore us to our original design, to make us acceptable. In other words, to redeem us. So God began that whole process by speaking to a select group of people. Within human history, God spoke to a group of people and He let Himself be known. He told them about His character and His expectations. And He told them then that one day He would send a hero. And this hero would set things completely straight. He told them this hero would come from a kingly line and and would be born in the city of Bethlehem in Judea. And then he did exactly what he said he would do and more. He sent his own son to complete the work of redemption history. In short, God had a plan to regain and restore humanity. He foretold this plan and then he made it happen exactly as he said he would. The birth of Jesus is the high point of God's plan. It is the central drama, or it begins the central drama of all of redemptive history. To illustrate this, let's listen to the message of the angels. So follow with me now the middle portion of this section of Scripture. 
she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, one angel was not enough, and a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to all people on whom his favor rests. Okay, so the baby is going to be good news of great joy for all people. This means this announcement was universal. But more than that, the baby will be the Savior. Now, the word Savior was understood and frequently used both in Jewish circles and in Roman circles. In the Old Testament, for instance, it was used for individuals like a guy named Othniel, who was a hero from the Old Testament book of Judges. But more often, it was used to refer to God himself. In the same way, in the Greek and Roman worlds, the word Savior was used to refer to great military or political figures. It was also used to refer to the gods themselves, like Zeus. So when the angels called Jesus the Savior, this would have been readily understood and awe-inspiring for the shepherds, but more so. This baby is going to be, the angel says, the Christ Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. This baby is the hero who had been promised for generations. The word Christ literally means anointed one, or the one who was to be recognized and set apart as God's special agent. Particularly, the Jews understood the Messiah to be the one who would bring their deliverance. And remember, the shepherds have just heard that this deliverance will now be universal. Finally, and perhaps most astoundingly, the angel calls him the Lord. So let's pause now for dramatic effect. Lord is the Greek word kyrios. And this is the most common title for Jesus in Luke's writing. The word can refer to some exalted person, but much more often it refers to God himself. For example... In Exodus chapter 3, we have one of the most epic encounters with God in human history. God gives Moses a name by which God himself might be referred to. And I want you to hear this passage. So I'm going to read Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Don't know the exact translation. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am, or Yahweh, has sent me to you. Pause here just for a little side note. Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew was unvowelized. Mostly all we have in Hebrew is consonants. So an attempt to be able to read it, later scholars and rabbis and readers 
added vowel points. They added, so if you look at an, uh, an ancient Hebrew text today, you see these dots and dashes all around the consonants. All that is is an, an indicator that helps a reader read the text. It fills in vowel points. They're not absolutely sure what those vowel points were in most cases. That's why you find sometimes the name Yahweh, which is a Y or a J, an H, a W or a V, and an H at the end, Yahweh. But that is also, if it's vowelized differently, can be pronounced Jehovah. That's why some of you who grew up around or in a Jehovah's Witness context, you need to know that it's I'm not trying to belittle, but it's almost silly to make the argument that the name is Jehovah and it can only be Jehovah because we don't know the exact pronunciation. And most scholars believe it was probably closer to Yahweh. And the translation of Yahweh, that's not just a name, that's a word. That word means I am. But here's the payoff. Listen to verse 15. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, he's just given them his name, He says, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation, the Lord. The Hebrew for Lord sounds like, and it may be derived from the Hebrew Yahweh. When this passage and all other Old Testament passages using the title Lord in reference to God are translated into Greek, they use our word kyrios. And this is certainly exactly what the angels mean in their proclamation to the shepherds. I want to read verses 9 through 11 again, and I want you to hear it. The emphasis mine, beginning in verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people today in the town of David. A Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Let's be clear. The angelic proclamation is God's birth announcement. He has come, just like he said he would. He's come to redeem us. The story of the birth of Jesus is the highlight of God's redeeming us. The context of that story is redemptive history. God's history of saving us. But finally, thirdly, ultimately, the ultimate context for this story is the human heart. God intends for this story to be set in our personal history. He intends for this story to be a part of our story, or rather, he intends for our story to become part of his story. History is his story, and we are invited in to his story, and I'm convinced we can never really find our purpose until we find it in him, because history is the flow of his story. Have you ever noticed that the birth of Jesus really comes to us both as a gift and as an, an invitation? A gift and an invitation. This isn't an event like my next birthday. This event offers us something and invites us into something. Listen, the angels told the shepherds, this is good news for you. A baby has been born to you. Peace is being offered to you. And if you look, you will find the baby. Something is being offered here. 
Jesus' best friend, remember? John, he put it like this. We've said before, John doesn't have in his biography of Jesus, he doesn't include a, a birth story. But he summarizes it like this. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes can be rescued. The hero has come and will have a connection with me now and forever. And I want you to notice how the participants respond to this offer. Beginning in verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, shoot, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has just told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So, (laughs) the shepherds can't wait to see. They can't wait to tell. Then they can't help but glorify and praise God. They go and they see and they are changed. And of course, Mary treasures all of this in her heart. And these are the kinds of responses that God expects from you and I. Don't leave today without knowing that God does not want casual investigators. God doesn't want admirers. He wants people who can't wait to see, can't wait to tell, and end up not being able to but give Him glory. This story is set in human history, in actual time and space. It happened. More importantly, this story is the central movement of redemption history. It's the center of redemptive history. This is where God comes to rescue us. This, I believe, is why we love stories about heroes, because we need one. And he came for us. And ultimately, this story longs to be set. It needs to be set. It's designed to be set in the context of our personal history. It's designed to be the prevailing theme of our personal history. This is not some isolated individual's story. This is a story that demands our attention. Our personal history gets changed and reordered and reoriented because of what happened in this story. There's an illustration that Charles Swindoll shared that I really love. Some of you know the teaching of Charles Swindoll. Swindoll asks us, in talking about the Christmas story and Jesus' birth, Swindoll asks us to imagine the year 1809. He says this, In 1809, the international scene was tumultuous. Napoleon was sweeping through Austria. Blood was flowing freely. Nobody then cared about babies. But the world was overlooking some terribly significant births. For example... William Gladstone was born that year. He was destined to become one of England's finest statesmen. That same year, Alfred Tennyson was born to an obscure minister and his wife. The child would one day greatly affect the literary world in a marked manner. And on the American continent, Oliver Wendell Holmes was born that year in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and not far away in Boston, Edgar Allan Poe began his eventful, albeit tragic, life. 
It was also in that same year that a physician named Darwin and his wife named their child Charles. And that same year produced the cries of a newborn infant in a rugged log cabin in Hardin County, Kentucky. The baby's name, Abraham Lincoln. If there had been news broadcast at the time, I'm certain, Swindoll said, these words would have been heard. The destiny of the world is being shaped on an Austrian battlefield today. But history was actually being shaped in the cradles of England and America. Similarly, Swindoll adds, everyone thought taxation was the big news when Jesus was born. But a young Jewish woman cradled the biggest news of all human history, the birth of the Savior. It's still the biggest news today. Okay, as an affirmation of what we have heard today, I want to invite you, if you would, to stand with me, and we're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come if they would, and they'll end us with a song. But I want us to affirm our faith, and I'm going to, I've done this before when we've read the Apostles' Creed, but I'm going to invite you to pause in the middle of this and make an observation about it. So let's read the Apostles' Creed together, and if you're able today, I don't want you to just read this with your lips, but I want you to affirm this with heart and mind and with your voices, with all your will. Affirm that this is what you believe as best you're able. And if it's not, then I affirm your important desire to struggle with this because it demands it. An offer has been made to you and I, and that offer carries with it an expectation of response. So this morning, let's offer all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of him as we together say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. Pause for a minute. Did you notice that in this creedal statement, which Christians have been doing this together, like this, for centuries, did you notice that in that creedal statement, buried amongst all of these epic statements, God the Father Almighty, Creator, Jesus Christ our Lord, crucified, resurrected, right in the middle of it, Pontius Pilate gets a mention. Right? How bizarre is that? Because... From the very beginning, Christians knew this was seated. The context of his life was real human history. It happened. And it makes a demand on you and I that we believe it or disbelieve it. He does not want admirers or casual observers. He wants people who are all in. Who say, yes, I believe and I'm banking my life on that. Third stanza. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. 
Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we believe. So we pray that you would receive all that we know of ourselves as we give it to all that we know of you. That's what you want. You just want us. You don't want our stuff. You don't even want our great intentions. You just want us. So this morning we lean in to belief in you. Father, I pray especially this morning for any of us who may be struggling with the edges of doubt. I ask today that you would speak faith into us and quicken our hearts, awaken us. Lord, I pray for the specifics behind that doubt. I pray for those who are struggling emotionally with relationship, those who are struggling financially, with fear, those of us who are struggling physically, perhaps with sickness. I pray that you would, this morning, be our Savior. We receive the announcement of the birth of our Savior, the Christ, the Lord, this morning, with all joy. It is great good news. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Sing joy to the world. Joy, unspeakable joy, and overflowing.